This is an ABC podcast. What would you say is the greatest sports team of all time? The Chicago Bulls basketball team in the 1990s? The West Indies cricket side, mid-70s to mid-80s. More recently, the All Blacks, New Zealand's rugby team. Well, everyone's got a different opinion, but do you know what made these teams so good? Is it a whole combination of things? Is it an indefinable mystery? Or is it much less complicated than that? Maybe there was something simple. Maybe there is some element that allows a team to become exceptional for a long period of time that's right in front of our faces, just so close to our noses we can't even see it. So that was kind of the beginning of it. I wanted to see if I could crack the code. That's Sam Walker, the founding sports editor for the Wall Street Journal. And he joins us later with how he went about investigating what makes great teams great. Hi, Amanda Smith here, and this is Sporty. So Australia gets to host a World Cup in three years' time. The next FIFA Women's World Cup comes to Australia and New Zealand in 2023. Ros Moriarty is the independent chair of the Women's Football Council of the Football Federation of Australia, the FFA. Now, Ros, this announcement has come at a time when you've just released a 10-year business case for women and girls in football, soccer. How much of this was reliant on a yes from FIFA for the the Trans-Tasman bid? Well, Amanda, we are absolutely delighted to receive a yes because it'll be an accelerator, it'll be a catalyst. But in fact, the Women's Council put together the business case quite independently of the bid, uh, integrated with its aims and objectives, obviously, but as a piece of work that women's football needed in Australia. And uh, so we're delighted to have the accelerant. Well, the 10-year business case includes doubling the participation of women and girls in football from the current 300,000 to 600,000. That sounds to me very ambitious. How do you do that, Uh, especially while everything's been on hold this year? So we had very good growth over the last four years. We had 20% growth and we believe that with the kind of measures that the business case is putting in place, that that acceleration to the 600,000 registered players is achievable given the pace of growth in the last four years. What sort of measures are you putting in place to get there? So the three pillars underpinning the business case include that, the accelerating of participation, and that includes retention of girls and women in the game. And we know that girls often join the sport for a different reason from boys. So it's often to play with their friends, social, it's not necessarily very competitive. You know, it may be down the track when they decide they want to become players, but that's not the base of the pyramid. So it's about helping clubs and others who administer football to have a mechanism that welcomes girls into the game and knows, has the expertise to keep them there. And that as they grow into those professional ranks, if that's where they want to go, that they see women in decision-making roles. Yes. So so you want to seriously increase the percentage of women on boards and committees of the FFA and member federations. How much has a lack of representation in governance held back the women's game in this country, do you reckon? I think very much so. In the last little while, the FFA board has moved to 50-50 
men and women, which is a great bonus for the game. We want to see that, though, filter down throughout the game. So filter down through the member federations and associations, clubs, you know, right through to grassroots football. So it is a big impact for girls to be able to see role models. And it's not just at that decision-making level administratively, but it's referees and it's coaches, everyone throughout the ecosystem that we want to have. Clearly, we also want men who are committed to the women's game, and there are many of them. Uh, But we really want to see women come through from the background where they've typically been. Well, the business case does also talk about ensuring success for the national team, the Matildas. Now, short of rigging the tournament, (laughs) how how will hosting this next Women's World Cup impact Well, on all these things around the women's game in Australia. The Matildas uh, have been a contender for World Cups for a while. Didn't really live up to their potential last World Cup last year in France. Look, I think they did as proud on that stage. It's a really tough gig. They were still, you know, up there at the pointy end of the tournament. I think what World Cup did demonstrate in France is just how turbocharged women's football has become in Europe and the UK. And, you know, if we look at the Matildas who have, recently moved across to those leagues in the UK and Europe, I think that really underlines just how quickly the game is surging forward, which is another reason for our business case, was to recognise that Australia really needs to join that party. You know, we really need to get on board. Yeah, well, uh, as you say, several of our leading players have moved overseas in recent times. Sam Kerr to Chelsea, Caitlin Ford to Arsenal. Is that a sign of Strength or weakness, though, for the women's game here? Our council actually believes that W League should be a full home and away competition, and it's something that we resolved as a council several months ago. It's on the table in terms of how the leagues reconvene after COVID. But in fact, players being scouted and transferred to the best clubs in the world, just look at Ellie Carpenter recently into Olympique Lyonnais. I mean, that is, you know, arguably the world's uh, greatest football club for women at the moment. So to us, it's a great strength. I don't think we would have considered Timmy Kale, for instance, playing in Britain being a weakness in Australia. You know, I think we have to keep the same lens on. Yeah, although, although it is a kind of talent drain, isn't it, from the local domestic competition? In terms of national team, I think it's a very strong uh, initiative to have our female players of the highest calibre hone their skills in Europe where the competition is higher, the frequency of matches and the opportunities are greater. It also opens up W League to our younger players and to to our mind this is not a negative. Well now, 32 countries are going to compete in this World Cup. That's up from 24 at previous ones. The final is likely to be in Sydney at the Olympic Stadium. But how far and wide around both countries will all the lead-up matches be played, Ros? You know, if I'm a kid, a little girl in Launceston or Townsville or Dunedin, might I get to see a World Cup game locally? Well, in Launceston and Dunedin, you will, in your hometown. Yes, the matches will, in Australia, be spread across Brisbane, Sydney, Newcastle, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth and Launceston. And in New Zealand, it will be Auckland, Hamilton, Wellington, Christchurch and Dunedin. So, you know, it'll be a celebration for those young girls who want to see a match and, uh, you know, really the whole football fraternity that wants to enjoy Women's World Cup. And Ros Moriarty chairs the FFA's Women's Football Council with the Women's World Cup now coming here in 2023. It's an exciting time to be involved in the sport. Ros, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Amanda.
Over this period of hiatus in live sport, a couple of standout documentary series have been providing a kind of access to the backstage world of sport that's rarely granted. Uh, there's The Last Dance about the US basketball superstar Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls in their glory years in the 1990s. And there's The Test about the Australian men's cricket team after the ball tampering scandal of March 2018, following them over the next 16 months of Test and One Day International matches, including the World Cup and an Ashes series in the UK. Adrian Brown is the director of The Test Adrian, The Last Dance is about the end of an era. The test is about the beginning of one. Hopefully, hopefully. I mean, at the start, and indeed for quite a while, you would have had no idea how the story of trying to redeem the Australian cricket team was going to unfold. Not at all, which was one of the great challenges. There were various times throughout that we thought, "Uh, will this go anywhere? What is the story here? But one of the critical points of it when we started filming it at this period of time it was after the ball tampering scandal and there was four factors at play that we thought were pretty critical one was no one had ever been inside the walls of cricket before so that that was a bit of a first in the world how sport is covered now there's not too many firsts left for access but that was one the calendar of cricket was amazing that within that 16 month period you had the indian test series in australia a world cup of cricket and the ashes in the uk so you knew you had that to come and then you had steve smith and dave warner to return to the australian team and then i I guess i guess beyond that too you had a new leadership with justin langer and tim payne which okay who are who are these people and those four combinations were always enough to there was something there let's see what could unfold yeah well well the test starts after as you say a very low point in Australian cricket the the captain the vice captain and opening batsmen are all banned and in disgrace and the coaches had to quit and the new test captain is Tim Payne who at the start looks about 12 I have to say he says um, people say we're one of the worst ever Australian teams yeah it's quite a good place to start it is that's the other part it couldn't get much lower you know it's that interesting discussion isn't it that is success as interesting as the struggle? Well, the central character in the test is the the new coach, Justin Langer, and his job is, um, well, it's really not just to get the Australian team winning matches like they did Mm. in his playing days. It's to get the current crop to do that in a, a different kind of way, to be good men. So it was a kind of moral as well as physical task, wasn't it? Did that make it more interesting for you as a filmmaker? It, It certainly did. I felt like as an Australian and as an Australian sports fan, I had fallen out of love with the cricket team and I wanted the motivation for this to be, I wanted to fall in love with the game again. And if I could tell that story, then maybe that could come through the screen with viewers. So cricket's a bond that I used to have with my dad. I want to find that bond again. And one of the great moments of making this was watching one of the test matches in, might have been the Lord's Test, and my little boy who's, you know, three and a half walked out, you know, almost sleepwalking at night and sat on the couch and watched fold four overs with me. In it. And I was like, oh, that's, that's why I did this to start with. Is there any footage in the test? I mean, you, you talk about having, you know, great access. Is there, though, any footage in the test that, for example, Justin Langer didn't want you to include? Well, there was a moment in the Headingley 
test which um, Ben Stokes wins off his own bat in the last This is innings. the third and test, the, that most exciting. Yeah, c- completely. Like one of the great test matches ever played. And um, there's a moment when Justin Langer kicked the bin over. And he asked at the time, he said, oh, I'd prefer for that not to be in. I just, for people to see my anger or frustration in that moment. But, but the interesting part of that for us was, it's not the moment when you kick the bin, it's the moment when you pick up all the rubbish <laughs> that was in the bin. Yes. I can't just... So you're picking up rubbish because people wonder why. And if you just kicked the bin and didn't pick the rubbish, I would probably say, yeah, that's okay, because it's just another reaction and there were so many reactions happening throughout the day. So that was one. Whether there might have been just, you know, or swearing. We were just mindful of swearing. But as long as it's in context or the heat of the moment, we felt it was okay because that shows and highlights the player's passion. Well, the challenge of um, being able to play a sport at the absolute outer limits of your abilities under pressure comes through in the test. It also comes through in The Last Dance, the, the series about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And it's it's kind of that so simple to say, so hard to do matter of being utterly present in the mm. moment. What did you learn about that in the course of making this docu-series? Nothing that would help my ability on the field <laughs> or anything in any sporting achievement. But, but there is something that we would sort of talk about, certainly within these offices, as we were putting it together, was in some ways, just do the next day. Just worry about tomorrow. Uh, because if we were sitting here trying to worry about, oh, we need Australia to win three games, to win the Ashes, to have... If we were focused on what the end of this story would be, we'd actually be missing all the little detail of what was happening day to day. That was really interesting. Hey, what do you think of the um, perspective that's given in The Last Dance, that, that Michael Jordan does pretty much get the last word on everything, on all the disagreements and controversies? Um, I think it's fair enough because I think the days of innocence are gone of a camera trailing and here's a documentary and we'll just see what happens and put that out there. People are too aware of their spoken word and the power and the meaning behind it that... Why wouldn't Michael Jordan want that if he was going to be involved in it? You could make a very different documentary if Michael Jordan wasn't in it, but... but and he did produce, co-produce and fund it. So, so your choice probably as a filmmaker then to go, okay, well, what one do I want to make? Do I want to make the 10-part series with Michael Jordan or the one-part series without him? Why did you get such access to uh, the team, to the dressing room, to team meetings, selection meetings, all that? I think it was the combination of a lot of things. It was post-ball tampering. It was a new, with a new coach, a new leadership, Tim Payne. I think the Australian cricketers were, they're aware, they all love their basketball. They're aware that all other sports are doing access and maybe it was an opportunity to do this. And I think there was a time that Australian cricket needed to reconnect with fans. And here's a way to introduce these new players that maybe people don't know to understand what they're about. And then I guess... We said it needed to be a small crew. Cricket dressing rooms, they're tiny. So you, you struggle to have a big camera and a big microphone and a boom and other things in there and a producer and a director. We thought, let's keep it small and contained. Let's effectively embed somebody with that team. Andre Major travelled with the team for 16 months and Andre ended up becoming the 13th man. He wore the kit, wore the colours and he became part of that team as much as you know, the players and all the support staff. And I think that's where trust just plays a huge role. The timing was quite good too for its release. Oh, completely. 
this boom in, in so many people being at home during these times and, and watching streaming services. And, you know, that's where The Last Dance itself even, I think, took that to another level because it came appointment viewing. And I know they rushed it earlier to release it on a, on a weekly series. Yeah, yeah, while the, the lockdown was on. Adrian Brown is the director of The Test, an eight-part series about the remaking of the Australian men's cricket team following the 2018 ball tampering scandal. It's on Amazon Prime. And the other docuseries, The Last Dance, about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s, is a ten-parter on Netflix. Adrian, good to have you with us on Sporty. No worries, great to chat. question that everyone who's involved in a team sport, be they administrators or coaches or players or fans, wants to know the answer to is, what's the secret to what makes a team great? Is it the coach? Is it the superstar player? The general talent of the players? Or is it management and finances or the team culture? Sam Walker set out to find the answer to this question and the result of his investigation is a book first published in 2017 that's become very influential in sport and in business. Now, Sam, I'm not going to say the title of your book just yet because that will give the game away. Tell me, though, why did you so want to know the answer to that question, what makes a great sports team great? Well, I was a sports writer for the Wall Street Journal, and and I didn't cover one sport in particular or any team. I, I kind of just covered championships. So I would go to the World Cup and the Olympics and cover the Super Bowl and you know European soccer title uh, championship games. And the only thing I really saw with any regularity were great teams. And I just was I wondered what it was that made them so much better than every other team. And the thing that just bothered me more than anything was I just could never tell. You know, there were teams that would go on to become dynasties, and there were teams that would have one great season and fade away, and I could never tell the difference. I could never really see anything palpable in the team that that would bear itself out. So it was a big source of confusion and and really obsession. I mean, I think I'd never really been on a great team personally, and I, I really wanted to know what it was like and what that magic element was. So I started asking athletes and it became this running thing where anytime I had a, an extra question to a coach or an athlete, I would ask them, why? You know, why is this team so much better than every other team? And, uh, you know, it, it, they would throw out a lot of cliches that you've heard a million times, but no one really, uh, they, they almost shrugged. And I realized from that that, you know, being on a great team didn't feel strange. It just felt normal. You know, it felt as if everything was functioning the way that it should. And I asked Tom Brady, the great American football quarterback, the question, and he said, you do your job so that everybody else can do their job. There's no big secret to it. So uh, it seemed very simple. You know, I thought that was that was not the answer, but uh, I started to think maybe he was right. Maybe there was something simple. Maybe there there is some element that allows a team to become exceptional for a long period of time that's right in front of our faces, just so close to our noses we can't even see it. So that was kind of the beginning of it. You know, I, I wanted to see if I could crack the code. 
Well, the first task for you was to identify the very greatest sports teams in the world over various sports and over recorded time. Now, this is, of course, highly contested terrain. Everyone's got an opinion and it's going to vary depending on what sports you like and where you are in the world. How did you decide on the best of the best? Well, the, the first thing I realized is, you know, there were two phases to this. First, I had to identify the greatest teams of all time, and then I had to figure out what they had in common. And the first part of it, I figured, I gave myself a couple of weeks. I said, oh, you know, I'll just come over the list and, you know, then I'll move on. And the whole process took about 11 years. Uh, and, you know, I was going to write a column about for the journal, and that never ran. It just turned into the biggest rabbit hole I've ever been down. So w- what happened was I realized that no one had ever really done this. I mean, there were a lot of lists of, you know, here are the greatest teams, but it was someone's opinion or it was limited to one sport or one country. And, and there really was no one statistic that you could use, whether it was winning percentage or, you know, uh, margin of victory. There, there was no way to measure it because all sports are so different. So I had to look at lists literally every team in the history of sports, which is what I did. I mean, (laughs) every team in 37 different categories of sports all over the world since the 1880s. And, um, you know, we're talking about digging up obscure records of, you know, Colombian soccer in the 1920s and things like that. So it was crazy. And I had tens of thousands of teams that I looked at and, um, I quickly realized I had two other problems. And the first one was, what's a team? I mean, you have to define what a team is. And and a lot of people don't make a, a narrow definition. You could say, oh, an ice dancing team. That, that's a t- Is that a team or is that a partnership? Is that something else? So I had to define what a team is in my view and then um, limit it to that. And then you had to look at what excellence is. What is excellence? I mean, there wasn't really any standard definition of greatness. And uh, the first thing that I, I knew was that I wanted to study teams that had sustained excellence, that had won for a long period of time. So I, I wound up setting the bar at a minimum of four years of dominance. Um, there were other pieces to it, too. I mean, there were a lot of teams that had great records but hadn't played against the world's best competition at the time. And there were a lot of teams that didn't play a major sport. Uh, and there were other qualifications, but really the other big piece of it was that I believe that a team had to have done something unique, you know, whether it was the number of titles they won or uh, their winning percentage over time. So in the end, there were eight tests, basically, that a team would have to pass in order to make my list. And that narrowed it down pretty well. There were about 123 teams that were very close. And in the end, only 17 that met all the criteria. I'm happy to debate this. I've debated it many times. It's much better over a beer or 10. But it's not something we'll ever settle. Really, all I wanted to do was come up with a pure sample. And, you know, I knew that these teams that I had identified were outliers. They were freaks. I mean, they're teams whose accomplishments were just absolutely off the charts in terms of the history of their sport. And there was no question about their greatness and their longevity. And I, I just thought saw them as my sample. And, and I believe that if there was any one quality that distinguished a great team, it would have to be on that list. Well, of the 17 that you ended up with in your, your top tier, they're men's and women's teams across soccer, rugby, basketball, baseball, handball, ice hockey, field hockey, volleyball, American football and Australian football. Collingwood fans here will be thrilled to know that the Magpies team that won four VFL premierships uh, from 1927 to 1930 is the earliest team that makes the cut. I think it is also the only one that isn't a global sport. 
Right. Yeah, no, I had a whole set of criteria for picking a sport that wasn't a global sport, really about how many fans it has and uh, the size of the talent pool. And Australian football was one that made it. There are other sports that, you know, like hurling in Ireland and some other sports that just didn't quite have, in my view, enough of fan base. But there have been a lot of great AFL teams recently. You know, Hawthorne went on that great run with Luke Hodge, um, mm-hmm. you know, right up to the, to the point where I was publishing the book and I, I somehow didn't grab that one. What I discovered, though, was, you know, all of these teams really, I'm looking for those freaks, really, like, and, and what Collingwood did. I mean, no one's ever done anything like that in the history of that sport. There's so many teams that were very close. And I'm telling you, in all those teams, the same general ideas that I discovered about these 17 teams still applied. So the dynamics of any team that sustains greatness for a long time, even beyond the list that I put in the book, I've discovered were essentially the same. Well, I should also mention that the Australian women's hockey team, the Hockey Roos, from 1993 to 2000, is also on the list. And the only team to appear twice is the New Zealand rugby side, the All Blacks. I know that's not very popular there. Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, the other team that was really hard for me from Australia was was cricket. And that was a sport that just bedeviled me because uh, I really felt... You know, that, that the Ricky Ponting team and the Steve Waugh team and the West Indies, um, and the Clive, Clive Lloyd. Yeah, I just could not pick a winner between the three of them. And so I didn't pick any. And I've gotten a lot of grief for that in your country as well. Well, the other debatable omission in your neck of the woods must be Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls of the 1990s, especially now with the renewal of interest with the documentary series The Last Dance that I was talking about earlier. Right. I've had a lot of tomatoes thrown at me in in the Chicago area for that. Um, Really, it's a technicality because the Bulls had really two runs, uh, two runs of three. So they won, you know, they won six titles in eight years. That just wasn't the most. I mean, the Boston Celtics from um, the late 50s until the end of the 60s, they won 11 NBA titles in 13 seasons. So not even close. And, you know, over time, the San Antonio Spurs... Uh, they won five NBA titles, but they had the highest long-term winning percentage in the NBA by far. I mean, that's a mark I don't think anyone will ever meet. So those are the only teams that did something unique. So they didn't quite fit my criteria. They did apply perfectly, though. They were in that second tier of teams that didn't quite make it. But the fascinating thing about that team, if you go back and look, I, I, I did this when I was analyzing that team. I like to go back to the moment where I think the dynasty began. And you know, for that team, it was December 19, 1990. And before that date, they had never won a title. And Michael Jordan had played for six seasons and had not won anything or even made it to the NBA Finals. And that was the day they started winning. They won 12 of the next 13. They turned into this team. They won their first championship that year. That was the day. And I went back and looked at what happened on that day that they turned into a real team. And that's just about where we're going to leave the interview with Sam Walker until the next episode of Sporty, when he's going to talk about what he found was the common factor among the world's greatest sports teams. When I started looking at them, I saw a pattern which was just astonishing because I've never seen anything that clear jump out of such a big pile of data before. And it was obvious. The beginning of the winning streak and the end of the winning streak for all of these teams corresponded very closely, if not precisely, to something simple. 
And that something is what Sam Walker from the Wall Street Journal is going to tell us about next time here on Sporty. Also next time, we're launching the 60-Day Sporty Fitness Challenge because, you know, we all need to try to stay fit and active in these funny old times. And to encourage you to enter the Sporty Fitness Challenge, we're offering rewards. Now, the challenge is to simply set yourself an achievable personal goal, one that increases your physical activity over July and August. And then by the 1st of September, tell us about it for better or for worse, you know, where you started, where you finished, the highs and lows along the way. And do that in an email or voicemail or a video to sporty at abc.net.au. I'm going to join in on this too, set myself my own fitness challenge, although I won't be eligible for a prize. You will be though. The judges are going to be awarding gold, silver and bronze medals for the most interesting accounts, serious or funny. And the winner will also get a $200 sports store gift card. So another week to sort out what your personal fitness challenge is going to be. Sporty is produced by Damien Rabbit. I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.